Support for this episode of Big Biology comes from Sable Systems. There's basically no other company that has had such a big impact on my research. I started using some of their products to do insect respirometry when I was a postdoc, and I fell in love with their modular, intuitive, easy-to-use machines. And when I got my next job, I bought a whole respirometry system based on their gear. You know, I was always surprised by the way they encouraged me to modify their devices myself. Most companies ominously tell you that opening the device voids their warranty. Sable Systems Gear is designed by working scientists to understand that every experimental setup is unique and that systems have to be highly customizable. The devices are unfussy, robust, and easy to set up. You can find their products at sablesys.com. That's S-A-B-L-E-S-Y-S dot com. For early humans, the world was a dangerous place. They worked hard to find enough food while avoiding danger from predators and humans they didn't know. But perhaps the single most important thing for our ancestors was navigating the complexities of living in groups with humans they did know. Evolutionary psychiatrist Randy Nessie argues that all of those ancient pressures profoundly shaped how our minds work today. Randy's one of the founders of the field of evolutionary medicine and a professor at Arizona State University where he applies evolutionary biology to the practice of medicine and particularly psychiatry. Instead of asking how someone became depressed or anxious and could get better with drugs or therapy, Randy wants to know why our minds are so fragile in the first place. Why are we vulnerable at all to mental problems? His recent book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, considers evolutionary explanations for our emotions and behaviors. For instance, anxiety is one of the most common mental illnesses in the U.S., affecting about one in five people. In his book, Nessie argues that some of us experience extreme anxiety today because, under many circumstances, a little of it was good for our ancestors. It was good to be anxious about prowling lions. People who weren't got eaten, so fewer of their genes are still around. But why should the genes that remain cause anxiety? Rennie says that we've been asking the wrong question— It's not that anxiety represents an overly sensitive alarm system. It's that the cost of a false alarm is far smaller than the cost of no response at all. So some diseases might just be a consequence of keeping that alarm system on the razor's edge of sensitivity. Such a finely balanced system is prone to malfunction. The right question to ask about emotions is not what they're for. The right question is, in what situation has this particular suite of changes given advantages? Once you ask that question, anxiety becomes much easier. In situations of danger, anxiety helps you get the heck out of there and prevents you from going back to situations that are dangerous. Anxiety can feel terrible, but unfortunately our genes don't care about our happiness. If they want to make it into the next generation, their best bet is with a hair-trigger lion detector. Since the early 1990s, the evolutionary psychologists Leda Cosmides and John Tooby have been studying a similar set of questions at the University of California, Santa Barbara. They and Paul Ewald, Peter Gluckman, and others have been infusing medicine with foundational evolutionary ideas. According to Randy, many of our good and bad feelings have some adaptive functions. He thinks of them like coughing or vomiting or even diarrhea. They're often not fun, and sometimes they're outright gross, but they can be incredibly useful. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Randy about how he and other psychiatrists use evolutionary biology to understand the origins of the fragile mind and to come up with new ways to treat affected people with more creativity and compassion. The fields of evolutionary medicine, and particularly evolutionary psychiatry, are relatively new, and Randy hopes that his ideas will become a normal part of medicine in the future. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. 
let's start with just a big picture. What is evolutionary psychiatry? Uh, maybe give us a brief history of the field, and uh, we won't, don't necessarily need to talk about its biggest successes so far, but just uh, where did it come from and what is it? So evolutionary psychiatry is just a subset of evolutionary medicine, a field that really got going with George Williams and me about 30 years ago now, where we asked a different question about disease. I mean, everybody tries to figure out why do some people get sick and why do other people not get sick and it's some combination of genes and environment. But we stepped back from all of that and instead asked this other question of, so why do any of us get sick? You know, why didn't natural selection just do a better job of protecting us? Why do we have wisdom teeth? And why do we have a blind spot in the eye? And, and why is the birth canal so narrow? And why can't we do better at getting rid of cancer and infection? And, and why do we have acne and hemorrhoids? You know, uh, um, you'd think natural <laughs> selection would have done a better job. And once we started asking that seriously, we realized that it was a fundamentally new question. Everyone had assumed that natural selection makes things work well. And, and nobody previously had really paused to ask, so why does it goof up? And we came up with several categories that have inspired lots of people to do wonderful science, really trying to ask this new question. So evolutionary psychiatry and evolutionary medicine, they're not fields of practice. A lot of people think, oh, it's like alternative something or another. No, there's nothing alternative about <laughs> it. It's like genetic medicine or genetic psychiatry, and it's just applying a basic science. But it does give you a pretty fundamentally different view of what disease mm -hmm. is. And that makes it just deeply interesting to everybody. So, 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 how did you end up linking forces with George Williams and and you know developing these initial ideas? So, how how did you guys get together? So, I read George Williams' 1957, where he offered an evolutionary explanation for aging, and that led me to a couple of years of research on trying to you know gather data from animals in the wild about their rates of death at different ages. And I very quickly was able to show that there was strong support for George Williams' ideas. So it turns out when I finally met him, um, he had been looking for a doctor to work on evolutionary medicine, and I had been looking for an evolutionary biologist to try to take an evolutionary view, not only of psychiatry, but of medicine in general. And so we wrote a paper, and then we wrote another paper, and then we wrote a book, and, and that gave rise to the whole field. Evolutionary psychiatry is much later, really. I've, you know, now I can say, I think, that I've been a little quiet about being a psychiatrist. Now, I've been an evolutionary doctor, because a lot of people mm. don't take psychiatrists all that seriously. Um, so, mm. so I've been writing papers about evolution and cancer, evolution and infection, evolution and Alzheimer's disease, things like that. Um, but now it's time to really bring the whole thing full circle and to see just how much progress psychiatry can make if we actually put it on the same foundation that we do for animal behavior and other studies of behavior. So, so I, I feel like there's been a lot of excitement about these ideas among you know, the, the, the sort of tribe that I'm part of. So organismal biologists, evolutionary biologists, you know, people doing basic biology research. How, how much headway have you made with psychiatrists? You know, it depends on where you are. Um, in England, the Royal College of Psychiatry has a special interest group called the Evolutionary Psychiatry Special Interest Group with over a thousand members. It's just, and they have meetings every few months and they're, they're fabulous. Um, in Italy next month, there's going to be a big confab for evolution and, med and psychiatry. In the United States, you know, everybody I talk to is interested, but not many of them know about my book yet. <laughs> um, that, that the publicity has been great in Europe, but not so great in the United States. Uh, once they hear about it, they say, wow, this is kind of what we've been looking for. Um, but they really don't know much about it. So I can't say there's much progress, really. Hmm. Do, you, do you have any re ideas about why the difference is in the U.S.? 
Well, you know, we're a backwards country um, in, ter in terms of <laughs> evolutionary biology, and half of the population mm -hmm. doesn't really get it, and people imagine it's political or, or, or something, uh, which is really too bad. I mean, I must say, I, can't, I have sympathy for people who find the ideas disturbing. You know, it's a very disturbing idea to recognize that it's bad enough that our, our bodies were, you know, a product of natural selection, that our minds were too. Um, there was a really big, wonderful um, meeting on evolution and medicine in Spoleto, the annual uh, Italian science festival with thousands of people. And I was thrilled that the Vatican paper um, said all the talks were really wonderful and excellent, except for the talk by Randolph Nessie. <laughs> because all the other talks were about you know, bodily kind of things and my talk was about the mind and they said well that just goes one step too far so, just too close to home for that yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting so let's get into the, the details of evolutionary psychiatry what, what is the problem in your mind <laughs> um, about considering brain disorders mental diseases and, and how does evolutionary psychiatry approach the, the concept? You know, this only makes sense in a bit of historical context, but the big picture is mm -hmm. that there's huge controversies still swirling around psychiatry. And it's confusing, it's contentious, it's, you know, a, a debating point. The New York Times every week or so has some article by somebody with some strong opinion about psychiatry in general. Well, that doesn't sound like a proper scientific field. We're supposed to make steady progress, you know? And so there's something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that was revised. Um, the DSM. Yeah, the DSM-2 was kind of cool. DSM-2, you said, did a person have bad feelings that, for no good reason? Yep, okay, that's depression. And that, that, that was anybody's opinion. But DSM-3 made it properly objective, so you had to count the number of symptoms and how long they had them. And, and with that, all of a sudden you could do reliable diagnosis. And at the time they, this was created in the 70s, everybody thought this is a temporary system until we can find the brain abnormalities. Because what we're gonna do is just like the rest of medicine, we're gonna use microscopes and genetics and scans and, and, and autopsy results. We're gonna find out what's wrong in the brain for depression, schizophrenia, autism, everything. And that hope has persisted but the deeply frustrating, disturbing, shocking thing is that we have not been able to find specific brain abnormalities for any of the major mental disorders. I mean, most people see these. Oh, that's really it, astonishing. You know, everybody, you, you see these pretty pictures with brain scans and light up pixels, and, and you hear about a new gene for this, new gene for that. Yes, but none of them reach the standard of evidence of saying, yep, if you got this, you got the disorder. Um, it just it just hasn't worked. So here is the most fundamental problem for a whole field. Why is it that we haven't been able to find? I mean, there must be differences in the brains of people with autism and schizophrenia from other people. Um, and mm -hmm. but but why why can't we find them? I mean, one good answer that I hope is right is we got to just keep looking. You know, I, I really hope this will work. I'm not one of these guys who says you know forget about you know reductionist research. I think we need to keep looking really hard. But the, but the studies for genes, wow, I mean, at the turn of the millennium, it was really clear that whether you get schizophrenia or autism or bipolar disorder or not, depends almost entirely on what genes you have. It doesn't matter what happened to you or what your parents did to you. You know, if you've got an identical twin with one of those disorders, you're probably going to get it. So it, it seems really obvious we're going to find the genes and find the cause. But thanks to cheap genome sequencing, we've now been able to run tens of hundreds of thousands of people and it's really clear that 
there are no common alleles, genetic variations, that strongly predict any of these disorders. They all influence the risk by 1% or less. There, there are a few copy number variations, a few exceptions of really rare things that have bigger effects, but this has been a shock to everybody. Likewise, with brain scans, we thought we were going to, in the decade of the brain, find the spots in the brain uh, that were wrong in schizophrenia, autism, mm -hmm. bipolar. No, no such thing. It, there are some There's generalizations. I mean, you, you can show that brains of people who are depressed are somewhat different from other brains, but not enough to make a diagnosis, and certainly not enough to identify any specific abnormality. So everybody's wondering, so, okay, what do we do next? Um, and, you know, I'm a bit advocate for don't complain too much unless you have something else to offer. <laughs> um, and, Good mantra. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, it's so, and I, and I do think evolutionary biology has something fundamentally new to offer. I mean, the large picture is that, first of all, you distinguish diseases from symptoms, like the rest of medicine does. People say, oh, are you trying to take psychiatry away from medicine? I said, no, um, I'm trying to take psychiatry to medicine and show how it really can be done in the same way we do the rest of medicine. Other doctors carefully distinguish symptoms from diseases. You come in with a cough, the doctor doesn't say, oh, you've got cough disorder. Take this cough syrup, it'll make it go away. Uh, you go into your doctor with anxiety, the doctor says, oh, you got too much anxiety. Take this drug, it'll make it go away. But anxiety is a useful response, you know, uh, just like cough or fever or vomiting or pain. Um, so once you start thinking that way, you realize that First of all, you gotta to look to see if something might be arousing that symptom, just like pneumonia might arouse cough, what might be arousing anxiety. And second of all, you have to ask about whether for this individual patient, the amount of that symptom they're having is about right and useful, or maybe it's normal but not useful in that instance, or maybe the whole system that regulates that defensive response is not working right. So it really helps you think more deeply about things. I, I, I wanna come back to this uh, uh stuff you were just saying about the utility of anxiety and depression. I, I don't want to spend some serious time on that, but I, before we do that, uh, let, let's circle back to your comments about, about genetics and the genetic underpinnings of, of these conditions. And it's this sort of funny spot, right? Because the, the claim is that our, our mental architecture and our mental states are products of evolution. And so of course that implies that there are heritable traits in there that have genetic influences and that there are alleles that that affect these states and so so is the claim that there's no genes of large effect that are determining these mental states and it's it's a collection of very small effects from very many genes and it's much more of a statistical thing is is that is that where the heritability you know comes from? this is my current project art is to try to ask the question about why would genetic variations that are associated with disease persist and the easy answer is that mutations happen and it takes a while to get rid of them that's called mutation selection balance a lot of people have speculated that these genetic variations that are associated with disease actually are useful I don't think there's much evidence for that, actually, although it deserves consideration. Uh, I've been looking much more at you know, other possibilities, and I, I could go into those if you want to. It's, it's a bit technical to try to figure it out, but you know, everybody just kind of assumes that you know, if you have a genetic abnormality, that abnormality is going to cause a problem. But that's not how natural selection has shaped the body. Almost all traits are not product of one or two or ten genes. They're products of like 50 or 100. In fact, if you look at height, height is the best example of all. I mean, how tall you are depends mostly on what genes you have, how tall your parents were. 
So you'd think that we could go in and find the genes for it. Not so. It's just like we, with these disorders. Um, it's thousands of genes, each of which influences things by less than 1%. You know, and even if you take the top 50 genes for height, together they explain something like 10% of the variation in height. So I think we're dealing with the same kind of situation for things like anxiety and depression and, and, and other disorders. But you know, the whole, I, this is why I say an evolutionary view gives you a fundamentally different view of the body and disease. You know, I think there's a tacit creationism often in a lot of medical research as if the bodies consisted of these genes and boxes and arrows and they go together in simple ways, kind of the way we force our students to memorize things for, for their tests. Mm -hmm. But, you know, whether it's the clotting system or the immune system, uh, they're not so simple as those simple boxes and arrows. Almost everything influences <laughs> almost everything. Uh, I love that, you know, leptin was supposed to be the hormone that controls body weight. And, and there's a great book by Jay Shulkin and, and a colleague about, about this. Um, they pointed out that leptin has at least 40 different functions sometimes serving different functions in the same cell. We're, we're thinking about the body as if it's a machine. And once you take a deeply evolutionary view, you realize that all of these genes are interacting in enormously complex ways to create traits and things that work pretty well. Quite well, actually. Yeah, sort of giant networks. That's right. It's all networks and pleiotropy. Yeah. Correct me if I've got your, your words or your sentiment wrong, but towards the end of the book, I think you mentioned that you see value in considering life more as a process than a thing. I mean, it's certainly right. <laughs> um, um, but, but I would talk about, you know, bodies as systems, you know, that, that, that comes very close to my current thinking. And really, I mean, what's disease? I mean, how, what bodies are are bundles of things that regulate things to replicate the information into a new generation. So it's all homeostasis and adjusting as a function of the environment. So what's disease? Disease is when those stabilizing systems go wrong for any kind of reason. And this means that I'm thinking more and more in terms of control theory, a somewhat technical mathematical treatment of things, but everything from how much RNA a particular gene makes to um, how nauseated you get when you smell something foul. I mean, everything um, is shaped by control systems. And I think most diseases, and especially psychiatric ones, can be understood as control systems not working right. We could talk about eating disorders now if you'd like to and drug abuse. Those are dramatic examples that, you know, they're genetic factors, but they're not genetically abnormal. What, what's wrong in those disorders is that a, a normal regulatory process goes spiraling off into a vicious cycle where the more you do, the worse it gets and the worse it gets, the, the worse it gets. Um, yeah. I think that's probably true How for How much is this, um, is, is this sort of percolating through the medical and psychiatric fields? Are there people taking this mindset and running with it research-wise, or are you the sort of outlier right now? Um, there are a few of us, um, but I, I, I wish I could say there were hundreds of us actually doing research in this area. <laughs> um, we need funding to study some of these things. I mean, later in the program, we might talk about where I'd like to see those funds put um, to, mm -hmm. to do specific things. But if you go to the National Institutes of Mental Health and you say, I'd like to understand the fundamental reason why low mood exists in the first place, how it's regulated and how it's useful, they'll say, what? 
You know, the, um, <laughs> they're, they're so fixed on the idea that we are going to find these specific brain abnormalities to account for these disorders that taking the larger, more deep scientific picture of trying to understand how things actually work, it's just not on their radar. On the other hand, if you really want to be like, that's what medicine has done. I mean, doctors who understand kidney disease, they don't just go looking for the cause of kidney disease. They first understand how kidneys work and how they're, how they're regulated and how they get dysregulated. Um, and I think once we start doing the same thing for thinking and emotion and, and the like, um, we're going to make progress the way the rest of medicine has. So, so let's talk about that with respect to anxiety and depression. Um, and, and I'll say... Uh, I, I had a sort of stunning revelation when I was when I was reading your book. So, so here's my favorite line in the whole book, which maybe is an odd one to pick. But you said the standard way to tell if a drug will be an effective antidepressant is to see if it makes an animal persist in useless effort. Uh, that that feels like somehow a revelation to me. So so what do you, what do you mean by that? And what are what are the uses of anxiety? Yeah, let, you know, let's work our way from emotions to anxiety to depression, okay? Because Ooh, emotions. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've yeah. got to just to say a little word about that because back in 1990, I wrote what's probably one of my most important papers called you know, an evolutionary approach to emotions, and I spent a couple of years trying to understand emotions because, heck, I was treating people with emotional problems all day long. You'd think I should learn something about it. And, oh, man, did, did, it, did that whole business spur emotions in me? It was so frustrating, you know. <laughs> I kept reading these things about how many different emotions are there and are there basic emotions, are there dimensions of emotions, where can we find them in the brain, uh, can you have emotions without being aware of them. And I was just giving me a headache. Um, and then finally I read William James, uh, who, who said, you know, oh, I'd hate to go through all of that emotions literature again. I'd rather move rocks on a New Hampshire farm. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm at least in good company here, you know, with my frustration. But I think most people who have taken an evolutionary view of emotions have tried to figure out what each specific emotion is for. And that seems like a natural evolutionary approach. Hey, it's got to be useful. What's it for? Um, and this is, again, thinking of things like machines. You know, this is a hammer. Oh, there's hammers are for something. A hammer is for something. Uh, but anxiety has all kinds of functions. It communicates with others, and it motivates action to protect you, and it spurs your physiology system. The right question to ask about emotions is not what they're for. The right question is, in what situation has this particular suite of changes given advantages? Once you ask that question, anxiety becomes much easier. In situations of danger, anxiety helps you get the heck out of there and prevents you from going back to situations that are dangerous, either physically or socially. And that takes us to think, oh, wow, anxiety is actually useful. And I, had, you know, I specialized in treating anxiety disorders at one of the world's first anxiety disorders clinics. And it was more than 10, 15 years I was into that work before I finally took really seriously my own ideas and said, wait a second, these are useful responses. And I started talking with my patients about that and saying, you know what, you're suffering terribly. You can hardly go out of the house. But there are people who have a worse problem. They never experience anxiety at anything. And they die. And all of a sudden, my patient's eyes lit up, and they said, oh, gosh, so, so I'm not just completely an abnormal person, so there's something useful about this? And that, that helped them quite a lot. Hmm. Um, and it also helped me. I mean, the, the next advance for me was something called the smoke detector principle, 
I kept asking myself, so why does this system go off way more than it should? It's, I mean, I, I was frustrated with my patients. I'd do behavior therapy, and the person would go to the grocery store five times and run out each time because they had a panic attack. And I, and I would say to them, nothing bad has happened. Why are you still feeling anxious? And they would say, well, Dr. Nessie, I just, it just happens. But finally it dawned on me that smoke detectors give us false alarms, and we put up with them because we know we want that smoke detector to go off every single time that there is a real fire. And so then I started doing the math, and if you do something called signal detection theory, you quickly realize that if the cost of a response is kind of low, like even a panic attack costs like 100 calories, but not having that response might be disastrous, like the lion actually gets you, then natural selection is going to shape that response to go off every time there's even a small chance that the lion is present. And those panic attacks are going to be perfectly normal, although useless in the individual instance. Once I started explaining that to my patients, about a quarter of them said, oh, wow, that makes sense. I'm going to quit worrying about this. Thank you very much. I'll call you if I need you. <laughs> and it was, just, it was such a revelation to have, I mean, that's probably the most practical impact. The other three quarters of patients, they needed, you know, medications and behavior therapy and psychodynamic therapy. They needed all kinds of help to get past it. But just the fundamental understanding of what we're dealing with and why there are false alarms, it was just a revelation to everybody. So, so it seems like, you know, any individual anxiety attack or panic attack is going to have a very low cost. And you, and you framed it in terms of 100 calories spent. But a lifetime of anxiety and panic attacks add up to a lot of health problems, right? And physically and mentally. And, and so, so is the issue just that, you know, the, those accumulate over such long periods of time that most people throughout our evolutionary history didn't even live to be that old anyway. And so... Is it a function of us living to old age? So let, let's pause about this, the health problem business. You know, every few months there's an article about how anxiety is going to kill you because it's stress. Mm. Um, but, but there's a huge bias in that whole literature. Um, nobody writes articles about how not having enough anxiety <laughs> is more likely to kill you much quicker. Huh. Yeah, um, right. and 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 there's a lot of people who want to sell drugs, who would like you to you know think that your anxiety is going to be fatal in physical ways as well. Yes, there is evidence that people who have chronic really bad anxiety are likely mm -hmm. to have more other problems uh, physically. But you know, th that just makes people with anxiety feel more anxious about being anxious. <laughs> Thank you very much, doctor. It's meta anxiety. You know, it, it, yeah. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And that, that's a classic example of these positive feedback cycles that I was talking about a minute ago. Um, and in fact, maybe we should talk about that with panic disorder while we're on it, because the essence of the problem for many people with panic attacks is that they fear the symptoms of panic itself. And it's often caused by doctors. I mean, someone suddenly gets an episode of rapid pounding heart rate and shortness of breath and sweating and a terrible feeling, and they're rushed to the emergency room, and the doctor examines them carefully and says, you know, I don't find any specific problems. I don't think you're having a heart attack right now, but you should be very careful. And if it keeps happening, come on back. Wow, that's like a perfect way to create... That's going to raise your but, heart rate right there. Well, so then the person starts monitoring themselves, and they're out mowing the lawn, and the heart rate goes up. Uh-oh, is it happening? 
And of course, once they think, uh oh, is it happening? That causes anxiety. That causes more heart rate. That causes more anxiety. And they're off to the races with a full blown panic attack all over again. So, this is another simple idea that I think helps doctors and patients to better understand what this is and to deal with it. Uh, it doesn't completely solve it. You got, I mean, the key to treatment for panic disorder is to get the person to go into the, into the situation where they're likely to have panic attacks and just stay there until the, the panic attack and comes and it goes. Uh, when it goes away, that actually signals the brain that you don't really need to have a panic attack, thank you. So doing that repeatedly is really effective as therapy, but it's hard as heck to get people to do that because it feels awful. One of the criticisms, uh, devil's advocate here, one of the criticisms of evolutionary medicine probably will always be that it's hard to do the experiments. Um, so or is there evidence in light of what we're talking about specifically that some form of anxiety, I mean, it is helpful in the traditional influencing fitness sense? Or could you think about ways to look at the data that exists to get some footing on that? Not much, actually. Just, I mean... There are a few people who have tried to look, for instance, at people who have more anxiety than usual and see if they have fewer car accidents or, or something like that. And that does not pan out very well. But again, these are so different from things in the natural environment. Um, just can't do that. Okay. So um, let's do a little bit more with emotions. Um, I'm sorry. I've got to do a little bit selfish here because uh, I was telling Art earlier today that part of the reason that I became a scientist is that my grandfather challenged me. It must have been, I think I was eight years old, 10 years old. He challenged me at some point in my life to explain emotions because he loved Darwin and he loved Darwin's book on emotions. So um, let, let, me, let me just channel him and ask you the question, why are some people so much more emotional than others? Will that get you any grounding on this sort of emotion as adaptation perspective? You, you know, that is a profound unanswered question. And isn't it... He was a smart guy. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating, though? I mean, some people, you say, you know, what about your emotions? And I say, what, what do you mean about these emotions things? <laughs> you know, they, they just don't get it. Um, and other people, you know, you look at them wrong and they collapse in tears or start yelling at you. Um, it, it, it's such a huge range. I mean, I think my answer is that, you know, there's not a big fitness difference between people with you know, somewhat more and somewhat less emotional tendency than others. But this is so important for psychiatry. And with borderline personality disorder, for instance, one of the most serious chronic problems we deal with, most of those people are extraordinarily socially sensitive. And they have huge emotional responses to small things. So somebody looks at them wrong and they say, why are you against me? And then the person starts, oh, I wasn't before, but now I am. You know? <laughs> so, there, there, so it really causes terrible problems. In fact, stepping back from this whole thing, um, emotions cause most of our problems. I mean, I mean, what we want is to feel good and happy, and not too many of us can for very long at a time because <laughs> we're always worrying about something or angry about something or bored about something or depressed about something, and our mind keeps wandering back to the problems. 
instead of the positive things in our lives. It's kind of like your tongue keeps going to the little sore spot in your mouth, you know. It just, it just can't quite help it. I think there's a good evolutionary reason for that. I mean, the mind has all this processing power and it spends it, you know, trying to solve problems and, and get us to get more resources and find more mates and have more babies. Um, so so we're, we're kind of trapped in that cycle that's been that's shaped for us. Um, but I, I find it fascinating that, and, and, this, and, and knowing these things about emotions and evolution, it doesn't cure them. I mean, we all have bad feelings. And I had a little bout of bad feelings the other day, and it was a little bit helpful to say, oh, I know why that's happening. Yeah, my mind, my mind is trying to get me to do this, which might be good for my genes, but not good for me. Um, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't make it go away, but it gives you a little sense of humor, you know, about, 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 about bad feelings. I wish it could make them go away because it's, it's such a problem. I mean, depression and anxiety together cause more disability-adjusted lost years than all other medical disorders. These are worse even than chronic pain. On chronic pain is worse. It's worse than cancer, worse than heart disease. I mean, people suffering with bad emotions. Part of it is due to the smoke detector principle. Part of it's due to the fact that life is tough and other people want the same things that we do and they're not always honest and sometimes they're mean. Um, sometimes it's because the system is broken, uh, either genetically or because of the modern environment kind of things. But it's just, I, I see, you, once you see like thousands of patients whose emotions are you know, really crippling their lives and making them awfully miserable, you just have to wonder who designed this thing? You know, it's, it's just like, you know, <laughs> is this all a cosmic joke or something? Um, and I'm sympathetic with all the folks who want to, you know, go find people who have depression and anxiety. It's mostly drug companies supported stuff. Um, I wish the drugs worked better. They work some. Um, but so I'm, I'm sympathetic with that. But stepping back again, it's just horrible um, that so many people suffer so much with these emotions to so little purpose. Can I get one more in here about emotions? I lied. We can't, we can't move on yet. <laughs> uh, Randy, do, do, do other animals have emotions, and how would we know? Well, sure they do. Have the, I mean, the feeling part of an emotion is only one part, right? Um, I mean, and you know, other parts include your physiology and your behavior and your memories and your learning and your, you know, there's all these other things that are part of an emotion. I mean, no, you can't really tell whether another animal is actually feeling things in the same way we are, but they certainly do have behavioral control mechanisms that make them behave differently. Even bacteria um, behave differently in different circumstances. When things dry up, they've got a special mechanism that turns them into spores. So they can survive till another time. Now that's pretty dramatically different from being in your cave in the winter with no food and curling up in the back corner until it's spring um, and not eating because if you go out to try to eat, get stuff to eat, you're going to die. But it's the same general idea. I like your, your, I think this is your definition from the book for emotions, specialized states that adjust physiology, cognition, subjective experience, and I think there was more to the list to meet the challenges of situations that have occurred to a species. So that captures all of those different things that totally different organisms are doing that all sort of fall up under that right. emotion envelope. So you might also recall that I, I think, you know, everybody writes a paper to define emotions. <laughs> you know, there are like 50 or 50 different definitions and papers written about all the definitions I think an evolutionary approach really does solve this. Because instead of mm -hmm. just thinking of some brilliant person's ideas about emotions, you say, wait a second, these are products of natural selection. So how can we understand what they are in terms of how they were shaped from their precursors and how they give advantages? So I think that simple definition that they're specialized states that coordinate all kinds of things together 
to increase your ability to cope with situations, that actually provides a solid foundation for going forward with emotions research. I'd like to ask a, a question to you with your, I guess maybe with your psychiatry hat on, but um, so so if I talk with my colleagues at different campuses, I think I think the general sense is that we see maybe more emotional suffering and, and mental illness among students on campus than we feel like we, we used to. And I don't know if that's actually the case. So I, so I guess the question is, uh, do, do you think there are changes among students in in sort of mental illness? Or, or is it that it's the same as it's always been and somehow it's now more out in the open than it, yeah. than it has been? So it's a profound question, but one that needs data. Um, and I try to be a proper epidemiologist and not just go off saying stuff <laughs> about, about these things. <laughs> um, there's pretty good evidence that mental disorders are not dramatically more common now than they were 30 years ago. An article just came out last week uh, looking at worldwide data of incidence and prevalence rates. There's, there's no good evidence that things are dramatically worse mental health-wise. Um, there is some evidence that for young people in the United Kingdom over the past um, 10 years, there has been an increase in measurable anxiety and depression. And that's interesting, and it needs to be replicated. But there's a huge bias here as well. Because if you want to do something about these problems, you document that it's a really, really bad problem. And you try to show it's increasing. Right. And, and, and who wants to say, no, it's not that big a problem? You, know, you, you, can't, you don't want to say that. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of like a publication bias. Yeah, right. So every, everybody yeah. well-meaningly you know, wants to really emphasize how big it is and how bad it's getting and, and how much worse it's getting. Even as I say this, I pause and I think, say, well, you know, the pressures on students today because of our social system are just horrendous. I mean, I'm so glad I'm old, you know, and, and don't have to be applying for college and doing all the fussing and, and, and pretending and stuff. It's just, I mean, the pressures on young people are just brutal uh, to get into the right school, to get good scores, to get into the right postgraduate school, to get the right job. It's, a, it's just a brutal you know, winner-take-all kind of competition. All the while, people running universities say, oh, we're trying to make a more you know, nice environment, but please apply for a Fulbright. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so the idea of just actually getting an education, getting a job, and living your life—it's almost like that's not acceptable anymore. I mean, everybody's supposed to be great, you know, and and if you don't do it through an established pathway, you have to make it in rap music or as, on Instagram or someplace. And every, uh, I, I think those those pressures are just huge. So I'm contradicting what I said before. It might be that you know, these new things of social media and brutal competition um, have increased anxiety and depression. But it needs a different kind of research. I don't think just going out and asking people, how anxious are you? How depressed are you? Even if the fancy ways of asking, I don't think those really get to it. What we need to be doing is talking with people individually for an hour saying, so let's talk about your bad feelings. Um, let's talk about your anxiety. Let's talk about your depression. Um, what are the main things you're trying to do in life? I mean, how's it going? What are the obstacles? What are the risks? What are the frustrations? Are you hitting a dead end any place? If you are, can you give up and change? Or are you kind of trapped pursuing that unreachable goal? And we've finally gotten to your point, Art, <laughs> that, you, that you started us <laughs> off with, which is what I think is probably the most useful thing I've come up with for, for low mood and, and depression. Uh, my, the residents I've trained tell me the most valuable thing I've taught them is ask your patients, is there something terribly important you're trying to do that you just can't succeed at, but you can't give up? 
And asking that question often reveals what's going on, even after you've talked to the person for an hour previously. They might say, oh, well, actually, I feel like I'm supposed to be home taking care of my mother with Alzheimer's disease because she's in a really cruddy home, but that would mean giving up my job. And I feel guilty about that every minute. Or, you know, I spend every minute worrying about my daughter who is addicted to heroin. But, and so I call her, and she won't even answer the phone, and then I cry, and I try to figure out what to do. And then there's a person who says, you know, what I really need to do is stop drinking, but I can't, and I'm depressed, and I think I should just kill myself. So, I mean, people are often trapped trying to do something that they can't succeed at and can't quit. And it's, you know, some very short podcast types ask me, so, Dr. Nessa, you think everybody should just give up? No. <laughs> uh, I mean, if, well, it uh, if it was easy as that, people would, uh, that's not people would, would do that, you know? Uh, but a lot of these things, some people uh, think pe people can give up. I mean, there's some guy who's trying to become city manager, and he doesn't get the job. And he spent five years feeling awful every day about himself. Okay, well, you know, either quit aiming at that or do something else. Um, you, you don't want to risk the rest of your life feeling bad about something that just is never going to happen. And then there's unrequited love. I mean, go back to the poets of the ages and it all comes back to sex and reproduction and trying to get that very special one to do it with you. Um, and of course, that doesn't happen nearly as often as we would like <laughs> because everybody else is very picky. Um, so are we. Um, so... So I think all of life is a matter of trying to do things and seeing what works. And I, th I think one of the deepest things to know about people is how do they cope when they're not succeeding? I mean, some people just give up fast. Uh, some people blame themselves. Some people blame other people. There's a big body of psychological literature about those two kinds of people. Uh, and some people just keep trying no matter what. And those people, I think, are especially prone to great success and they're prone to deep depression. I need to make a quick distinction here. Um, I, I try to be very careful distinguishing low mood from depression. Because as soon as you say depression, people think, I've been depressed, you don't know what you're talking about. Yes, I do. Um, depression is a, is a really serious illness when it's bad. Uh, it's not normal mood. So I use the phrase low mood to describe the same kinds of feelings and responses that aren't as bad and might be products of what's going on in a person's life. So low mood is... Yeah. Low mood feels less medical yeah. somehow than the word Yeah, well, as soon as you make right? a depression, you yeah. start counting symptoms and trying to find causes. Um, yeah. But this, yeah. this helps bring this little discussion to a, a conclusion, though, because very often ordinary low mood ar gets aroused when you're trying to do something that's not succeeding. And if you keep pursuing it and pursuing it and pursuing it, the low mood escalates and escalates and escalates until it becomes full-fledged depression. Actually, there's about a dozen psychologists who've done wonderful research about this. Carver and Shire have all kinds of experimental studies demonstrating that it's not reaching a goal that influences your mood, it's your rate of progress towards a goal. That's really relevant research for this. But none of that research has made it to psychiatry. And I'm hoping my book and podcasts like this can encourage people to bridge these two fields. connected dots for us. Art and my, probably our favorite section overall was the, the self-deceit section, would you say, Art? Yeah. How, how does that fit in here? I mean, what, what's the relationship between people that are really adept at deceiving themselves and, and things like depression? 
Yeah, you know, so I, I grew up thinking, know thyself is the ultimate maxim, right? So let's follow the Greek philosophers and get deep knowledge about ourselves. And that made it, me especially interested in psychodynamics. Because psychodynamics is a way of, of getting to know your inner impulses that you otherwise can't really get in touch with. So it really does give you a certain deeper kind of understanding of your own motives and, and, and the rest. But then gradually from this evolutionary perspective, I started asking myself, so how come there's a whole system in there to keep us from knowing stuff that we otherwise could know? Um, <laughs> um, what's going on there? Is, is it just that you know, the mind isn't capable of it? That doesn't seem to be the case because you know, sometimes somebody will say, um, that person just hates me. And you say, well, what's the evidence for that? And the person will say, I can just tell. And, and then you say, well, can we talk about your feelings for that person? Oh, I really want them to like me. I think they're great. But then you dig deeper and do free associations for a few hours, and you quickly discover that the person you're talking with hates the other person. And, and, and they're doing what's called projection, and they're attributing their hatred to the other person. And of course, this is a toxic business, because once you start thinking that people that you don't like don't like you, then you act as if they don't like you, and then soon enough, they don't like you. <laughs> so it's yet another, it's yet another positive feedback uh, kind of thing. So I asked myself this question about why these psychodynamic defenses and why the ability for the unconscious exists at all I mean, somebody unconscious is just the mind can't do stuff. Um, you don't notice when your gallbladder contracts because there's no reason for you to. But that is not the right explanation for these kind of defenses and unconscious. There's something else going on. And there was a very specific idea about this that's been promulgated by some famous evolutionary biologists. Um, Bob Trivers in particular and Dick Alexander suggested that if you weren't really aware of your own motives, then maybe you could better deceive other people because all of life is a bunch of deception anyhow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I thought that was an interesting idea. And, but then I started going to meetings and talking with people, and they said, oh, that's the explanation. I said, whoa, um, can we pause here a second and see if that's, that's like a really cynical view of, of life. <laughs> and after I wrote a few papers about that that got me in trouble because they were psychoanalytic kind of papers and you weren't supposed to do that. Um, and... I concluded they're probably right, in part. But I think the exact opposite is probably even more important. That is, the ability to just completely overlook our friends' transgressions uh, and forget about them. I mean, that's a very important part of having friends. It's just not remembering when they, mm -hmm. when they dissed you or, or something. Uh, I, I think that, that helps a lot. Furthermore, we come back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about pursuing goals and the like. I don't know how you test this, but it seems to me so useful to decide that you never wanted something anyhow. You know, you know you're trying and trying and trying to get into graduate school, and then you don't get in, and you say to yourself, you know what, that would have been six years of really hard work for nothing at low pay, and after that I probably wouldn't get a job. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm really glad I... Thank God I didn't get into grad <laughs> yeah, school. And, and, and that's really good. You know, that's a very healthy way of thinking and going on with things and just ruminating objectively about failures. That doesn't do any good. Uh, so I think subjectivity, and I was very surprised to discover this being kind of dedicated to objectivity, <laughs> but you know, I was very, I mean, subjectivity is good stuff. 
um, for, for getting us through life and, and having us have better relationships. Maybe it's better for helping us better deceive other people also. But I really take issue with the, the super cynical view that some evolutionary people take about you know, human nature. So the capacity for sort of moral behavior and, and altruism. So, so where, does, where does that come from? So I, th I think one of the most um, challenging and problematic things about evolutionary approaches to human behavior has been the tendency to assume that everybody is out to get maximum matings at all moments, however they can, by deception and subterfuge and, and, and all the rest. Yeah, that does happen a lot, as anybody who's ever been in the dating scene knows. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but people have a capacity for genuine morality. And you know, as a psychiatrist working in an anxiety disorders clinic, you see people who are tossing and turning in bed all night long, wondering if they accidentally insulted the person at the checkout counter at the grocery store. You know, they're, they're just so sensitive. And, and it's not just the people tossing and turning who have anxiety disorders. I think most people are extraordinarily socially sensitive. I mean, we really care what other people think about us. And, you know, back in the 60s, it was, I'm okay, you're okay, um, I'm not going to worry so much. And I had people coming to me saying, you know, I care too much about what people think about me. And I said, yeah, we'll try to fix that. No. Um, once I started actually living life more um, and meeting more people who didn't care what people thought about them, <laughs> who were really obnoxious very often, um, <laughs> um, I realized that, you know, there might be something evolutionary going on here. I was treating hundreds of people with social anxiety. They're just so worried about what other people think about them. And it, it dawned on me that, gosh, there must be a reason for this. And that goes back to this question about how can morality exist? And a deep problem that really was brought up most profoundly by George Williams and, and others when they discovered that group selection doesn't work. Now, the old idea about things like this is natural selection shapes all kinds of traits that are good for the species, like you know, mm -hmm. doing what's right for your group. Mm -hmm. And we won't go into all the details here, um, but the, the bottom line is any genetic variation that makes an individual do things that are good for the group that makes that individual have fewer offspring, that's going to go away pretty quickly because that individual has fewer offspring. There are very rare exceptions, so it's not an all or none thing. But a lot of people have said, because we can observe morality in humans and generosity and, and loyalty, that proves that group selection must work. So I put my mind to the task of saying, mm -hmm. I think there must be some other explanation. And I finally found in the work of Mary Jane West Eberhard and others, this principle called social selection. And, you know, being a moral person, it's a, that's a really big deal, expensive thing. That's like a peacock's tail, you know, it's, it's like really huge. If you do the right thing, you're going to pay penalties for that a lot, but a lot of us do. So this, this is an evolutionary mystery. The peacock's tail is easy. The male, pe the male pe peacocks who have a big tail are more desirable as mates. And so they have more offspring, and that explains why the tail gets so big. Uh, one person, Jeffrey Miller, has suggested that actual sexual choices, it might be that people choose sexual partners who are nice. And I think that's a plausible idea that has not been developed far, far enough. But Mary Jane Wasserberg points out that any social choice, not just of mates, but of people you want to associate with, and that gives advantages to that person who is chosen, and it gives advantages to you. 
And so what you get is a sorting system where those people who are most desirable as social partners, even aside from sexual partners, those people who are most desirable, they get the best other partners, which is kind of a brutal business too. The pe people who are nicest and has most to offer and do offer the most get the other partners who are best. But this creates, by pure selfish choices, really strong selection for being good and for caring what other people think about you which leads directly to one of the worst psychiatric problems, which is social anxiety. I mean, this provides the explanation for why we are so sensitive. And, and I think this is helpful for people with social anxiety to realize, you know, it's not all just you're a weak, shy person. It is that your social sensitivity has been shaped by the benefits of being appreciated by other people and being a better partner. So, so if I could just re rephrase a little bit what you said, it sounds like um, that moral behavior is a kind of, you know, emotional, mental peacock's tail, and it leads to assortative mating among people that, that have this, this tendency to begin. Yeah, that's close. Is that, I, I, well, is that a fair well, way to say leave that? Leave the mating part out. Um, it just, just a, I mean, we're all looking for partners in life, aside from sexual partners. We're looking for podcasting yeah. partners. You guys seem to have a good time working together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm guessing, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing, except for certain days, you know, you both kind of trust each other and admire each other and work well together with each other. And, you know, it's all good. And, and you were kind of careful about choosing who you were going to do this with. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And those other poor people who, you know, weren't quite loyal and trusting and, and generous, uh, they didn't get the ability to work with you on this great project, and they lost out. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not just mates. Uh, it's choosing people. When we choose people to join us in a sorority or fraternity or at a, at a job or, or you know, wherever we choose people, we're trying to choose people who are nice and generous and loyal and honest and kind and generous. And it's, it's not... Mm -hmm. I mean, this also addresses a really profound question in philosophy. I mean, what is moral? What do we mean by moral? And I think you know, that's too deep and complicated to go into here. Yeah. But, 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 <laughs> we'll solve that in five minutes. <laughs> it's like porn. We know it when yeah. we see it, but it's hard but, to but define. We can tell where, but if you can tell where it comes <laughs> from. I mean, what, yeah. you know, I think a lot of what we mean by what's moral is how we want other people to behave. Yeah. And and it's because of these things of choosing partners that, and this this is why I mean social media now is so mean, you know some people do something that's a violation of something or another and everybody piles on, you know to right. to you know shame them and all the rest without even knowing much of anything and forming a, a social group and everybody can say oh we're better than other people because we jumped on that person who was a bad person, uh, the out the out group, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that gets complicated. So, so Randy, I, I've got to ask um I'm uh. A fan of this this Netflix show Mind Hunters, and um, I mean, what, where do psychopaths and sociopaths fit in there? Is there any way to see them as some sort of, you know, advantageous genotype in a particular context, or what, what would be your explanation for? those types so this is another unanswered question um i've never okay. you know you know <laughs> some of my psychiatrist friends went into forensic psychiatry, and they spent their entire careers dealing with sociopaths murderers and, and con men and, and, and all the rest. I did the exact opposite. <laughs> you know, I, wor I worked with people who were anxious and basically good people. And I, and I, think, <laughs> I think that's biased my view of human nature. And I think my friends have also gotten biased views 
of, of human nature because of who you spend spend time with. The, but the problem of how there can be some people who are sociopaths is a profound one. Linda Mealy was a profound evolutionary psychologist back about 20 years ago who read an article suggesting that this is what's called frequency dependent. Uh, and she suggested that you know, in a society where most people are good, a sociopath can make hay because they're all suckers out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if there are too many sociopaths, then you don't have anybody to take advantage of and, and the trait goes away. And so it maintains itself as a certain level of stability. I've never bought that, partly because of my bias, um, mm-hmm. but also because a lot of sociopaths have evidence for minor brain abnormalities and minor neurologic abnormalities. It's highly heritable. I mean, who is a sociopath is determined profoundly by genes, but I think many of them can be interpreted as having a brain abnormality. I mean, there's even you know, little reflex abnormalities that are characteristic of some people with, with sociopathy, and it's probably not one thing either. You know, I mean, some people just don't experience their emotion, and some people have special drives. That I don't think it's, it's, it's just one thing. But another possibility that I think is more disturbing is that natural selection continues to work on this. And that, you know, the advantages of being socially sensitive and of, of having a moral compass, um, they're not, they haven't been around for that long, really. You know, 100,000, a few hundred thousand years, maybe. And, and it might be very different in different social kind of circumstances. It might be if you're in a complex kind of society, there's one kind of selection acting on that kind of thing. And if you're in a smaller group, it's, it's different. So I think there's a lot to be done on that. But my basic view is that, I mean, I see it as a strategy that works for some people, but I wouldn't want to call it a, a strategy that has been selected for. I think I, I might call it a strategy that's been left over. But I might, well, I might be well wrong about this. I don't know anything about sociopaths. I haven't seen a thousand of them. Well, the difficulty is when it comes to anything scientific, when something is rare, it's hard to, to study. So, so there, I mean, it's yeah. 1% of the population that's a really serious sociopath, and you know, 4, four or 5% who are not quite sure what you're talking about when you're talking about guilt um, and, and these other things. So it's, it's not that rare, but it certainly is overrepresented in our prisons and, interestingly, on our newspaper front pages. These are all fascinating sorts of things, but where do you see psychiatry going and how do you expect evolutionary perspectives to, to help? Right. You know, every time I do an interview, especially shorter ones from people who haven't read my book, they say, so how, doctor, is this going to make therapy better today? And I say, well, you know, it's not. <laughs> that, 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 that's like saying, how is genetics going to make medicine better today? You know, uh, it's a basic science. But I do think in contrast to something like brain scans, it gives us a fundamental, solid, theoretical framework for making sense of things that otherwise don't make too much sense. I mean, this right. distinction between emotions and, and behavioral disorders, I mean, that's fundamental. And we need to start mm-hmm. thinking about emotions in terms of their functions, in terms of how they're regulated and, and all the rest. This transforms how we do research in psychiatry. I think you mentioned before the rats swimming in a vat of water to see how long they swim as as the best Mm -hmm. test for what's an antidepressant. Well, most of those studies have been done on the assumption that continuing to swim is a good thing and giving up is a bad thing. Stop. Mm -hmm. Think evolutionarily. Rats that keep swimming drown. And in fact, the the rats that get Prozac and are thrown in the bucket of water, they're more likely to drown than the rats that, that 
just float with their nose above the water. So it just it, it changes your, your perspective in such fundamental ways. Likewise, in talking about genetics of these disorders, I mean, the idea that we're going to find the genes, people keep trying for that, but it's increasingly clear that they don't exist. So what do you do? An evolutionary approach says that instead of looking for the genes, we should be looking for the traits that are pushed to what I call a cliff edge, where natural selection shapes the whole system to be right up there at the peak where everything is maximum and really cranking along perfect, except one more step takes you off the cliff edge to the whole system collapsing. So that, that is another fundamentally different way of thinking about genetics. Um, in the clinic, I think there are, you know, I keep saying, this is not a method of treatment. This is not supposed to cure anybody tomorrow, but boy, it makes you a better therapist and psychiatrist once you understand these things. I mean, most, one of the crucial things in all therapeutic relationships is the distance. I mean, usually patients want to get closer and have, you know, a close personal relationship. And if you go too far down that road, you're in a big mess because you're promising things you can't deliver. But if you step back and say, sorry, I'm just your shrink and you just pay me and I just give you advice, that doesn't work very well. Yeah, so, so thinking about how these relationships work in terms of social selection and evolution relationships, I think that changes our understanding of the therapeutic relationship. Uh, likewise, as I said about anxiety, helping people to realize that there is a system that natural selection has shaped to downregulate anxiety if you put yourself in the situation and let the anxiety happen and come and go. That helps people quite a lot. And then when I talked about depression, trying to look very carefully with a person at what I call the review of social systems and look at every aspect of the, a person's life and try to understand where a problem might be, that changes how you do therapy too. So it's not a quick, you know, do this new kind of evolutionary therapy. I, some of my friends say we should do that. I'm against it. I think evolution should inform every kind of therapy. Um, but as more and more people get the, the big picture, I think it's going to go a long ways towards getting rid of the stigma and the confusion and the controversy that swirl around psychiatry. Uh, diagnosis, everybody argues about diagnosis. Yeah, there's no need to really. I mean, the clinical syndromes we see are there and they're, they're useful to talk about. The fact that we can't find specific genes or specific brain lesions, um, that's just too bad. Um, the, the, the disorders are still there and we need to, we need to accept the science. A lot of times the people who are most big about, we've got to get scientific about it, they're not paying attention to the findings for the past 30 years, which is that we have not found genes or brain lesions. So, so if you had to turn these ideas into a, you know, a, a, a sort of more full-fledged research program, so, so you know, if you had to tell NIH what to do and how to spend their money to start to get at these questions, what, what would you advise them to so do? So there might be 20 specific projects plus a giant educational initiative. I mean, scientists who study animal behavior all base it on evolution. Scientists who study medical, mental disorders, hardly any even know about evolution and behavioral ecology. So part one is, let's educate everybody. And it's not up to me, and you know, this should be a giant campaign to bring the same kind of basic science to bear on mental disorders as we do for animal behavior. But part two are a whole bunch of very specific projects. Um, for instance, uh, you know, when you go to the doctor, he does a, or she does a review of systems to check, do you have any, you know, um, blurry vision or dizziness or rapid. They ask you all kinds of questions that seem unrelated to your problem to see what might be going on. And I have a fairly systematic review of social systems that does the same thing for a person's social life. 
So it investigates the possible origins of different emotions. And you can't just do a checklist of life stress or life events. And that's very objective. And, and it's a good start. But that's not where the causal you know, things for emotions comes from. Emotions come from a person's appraisal of what events mean for their ability to reach their personal goals. So I think an evolutionary framework offers a way of bringing in this personalized approach to emotions in, in a framework where instead of just giving your opinion, you can be scientific about measuring these kinds of things. I think there are opportunities to change how we do our brain scanning studies. Instead of just using diagnoses of the sort that are usually used, I think we should be using the products of a review of social systems to try to figure out which patients have always had depression because their parents and grandparents had it, which patients are in the midst right now of a really messy marriage they want to get out of but they can't, which people are impoverished and can't even get enough money to get on the bus to get their job. You know, there are all these different kinds of situations that can lead to depression. And I think once we start separating them out functionally in evolutionary frameworks, we will see better findings from our brain studies and likewise for genetics. Right now we're doing the genetics of depression as if it's one thing, not even paying attention to the fact that low mood is useful. I mean, I think we can back up and start looking instead at specific symptoms. And one of my former graduate students, Eiko Fried, has really written a dozen wonderful articles showing that why don't we, you know, summing up all the different symptoms you have of depression into a score, that's nonsense. That, that's like summing all the symptoms you have for pneumonia and saying how bad your pneumonia is by how often you, you know, could we please look at the x-ray, you know? Yeah, I have pneumonia six. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So you know, he's made great progress showing that if you use specific symptoms, you can make more progress. But I think, you know, I did work early on the dexamethasone suppression test, which is an endocrine abnormality that occurs in some people with depression. I'm pretty sure if we were to look at the details of which of categories of people based on a review of social systems, we would be able to find out which people have that neuroendocrine abnormality and which ones don't. Uh, and I just published an article last week uh, in Dialogues in Clinical Neuroscience with another colleague, Dan Stein, from South Africa, about how an evolutionary perspective might help us find better drugs in psychiatry. Instead of this assumption that we're finding drugs that normalize something or replace some missing hormone or something, we need to recognize that what we're doing with antidepressants mostly is blocking a normal system, just the way pain blocks normal pain systems. And the fact that we have antidepressants that work on numerous different places in the system, it's no surprise you can block pain many different places in the normal pain system. So I think that gives great opportunities for trying to look for drugs that influence emotions by recognizing their utility instead of just assuming that they're abnormal states. There's so many things ready to be done. And, but every, every one of these projects is a few hundred thousand dollars to a few million. And yeah, first yeah. we've got to get people educated. So on that front, um, I've been a fan of the concept of evolutionary medicine. We contacted, uh, I contacted you a long time ago about advice and, and putting together a class. And um, as I've seen the, the field develop from afar, it seems like there are, there's some progress being made on the educational side, that there are more programs and institutes. I mean, what is the ship turning? What's your feeling on that? So now? we're really doing great. One of our uh, postdocs here at Arizona State University who studies educational things has just done a survey and finds that more than half of all research universities in the States have specific courses on evolutionary medicine. 
So that's going to change the world. Those kids are going to grow to medical school, grow up and become deans, and finally put evolution in the curriculum. But speaking of pursuing unreachable goals, I've basically spent my entire career trying to bring evolutionary principles as a basic science to medicine. And I've got to say I failed so far. Um, there is no medical school that teaches hardly any evolutionary biology. Most deans say, what do you mean? Um, some even say, hasn't evolution been disproven? That's only one dean. But, <laughs> but you know, there, there's just... Uh, I think we're getting there, but what I want to do now that I think we're making good progress with undergraduates uh, is turn my efforts to finding collaborators in medical schools and try to create online resources that any person who's teaching a medical school class or nursing class or veterinary medicine class or public health class, they can slip it into the curriculum and they can have a 20-minute module that I've narrated about aging or a 20-minute module about evolution and pain or a 20-minute module about evolution emotions or one about why can't cancer exists at all, uh, or one about why we can't find antibiotics that the bugs don't develop resistance to. I mean, that, that's my goal for the, the coming years, and we'll see if I can find medical schools that are interested in going along with that. The other thing that's been great has been the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. That was made possible by the wonderful folks here at Arizona State University. Um, I was invited here to start this program um, in the Center for Evolution and Medicine and higher faculty, and they allowed me to organize a big international meeting. And that led to the Society, which has just had its fifth annual meeting in Zurich. Um, next year, we're meeting in Athens, Georgia. The year after that, we're meeting in Portugal. Um, and finally, we're bringing together the scientists, the doctors, the researchers, all together to talk about the scientific progress and specific studies. And it's just so interesting. We have such a good time. Um, and some of the things are turning out to be very practical. Uh, there's something called the George the Gil Oman Prize uh, that is offered by Gilbert Oman, former president of AAAS, for the best paper in the field. This year, the paper was one about a strategy for preventing antibiotic resistance. Profoundly important. And there's the Williams Prize for the best paper published in our journal, which is Evolution of Medicine and Public Health, $5,000, went to the authors of the paper about aging showing that Georgia's original theory uh, back from 1957 now has strong scientific support. That already has transformed gerontology. Most gerontologists recognize that aging is shaped by natural selection. So that, that's an area of, of real progress. We're getting there. People say, aren't you frustrated? Aren't you, you know, don't you get mad? No. Um, <laughs> well, well, sometimes I do. <laughs> but, but I try to realize that, you know, you have to do what works. And maybe I'm going on a limb now and putting my efforts towards medical education. I might not succeed at that. But I think I, I want to do that while I can. And to see there must be some deans out there who record. I mean, I swear you can better understand and memorize the 10,000 facts in a medical education with an evolutionary framework. In, completely oh yeah i mean i mean i that's the hook i always get the undergrads yeah. on. i say i'm gonna give you the coat rack where you can hang on that's, to all that's the brilliant. facts everybody totally goes for it oh oh what's that what's right that? but you know when you got to get deans on board and you need a few hours with them to, to get that i mean i hated biochemistry because it was all this memorization of, of stuff but now i read books on biochemistry for fun i mean <laughs> not too seriously but but there, once you realize how these systems got there and what they're for it's fascinating
Randy was the founding director of the Center for Evolutionary Medicine at Arizona State, as well as the founding president of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health, whose goal is to facilitate communication among scientists, students, clinicians, and public health officials using evolutionary biology as a backbone. And these ideas are starting to catch on. In episode 12, we interviewed Joel Brown, an evolutionary ecologist working at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, about using evolutionary theory to treat cancers. He and his colleagues have had phenomenal success with some prostate cancer cases and are planning new trials now with other conditions. So far, though, evolutionary medicine remains outside the mainstream. No medical school requires evolution of their students, and very few med schools even have evolutionary biologists on their faculty. The International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health hopes to change that. The Society has a database of resources about evolutionary medicine on their website, including materials for people interested to teach the discipline, and the Society publishes a peer-reviewed journal. You can find out more on their website, isemph.org. You can also find out more about evolutionary psychiatry and medicine in Randy's books at his website, randolphnessy.com. We'll link to those resources on our website. Thanks for listening to episode 24. In two weeks, we're back with an interview with the neuroscientist and philosopher Patricia Churchland. We talk with Pat about her new book, Conscience, which covers the neurobiological origins of our moral intuitions. And I thought, this is it. This really shows us that not only are our mental states, brain states, but that we can learn totally unpredictable things about ourselves from neuroscience. And that motivated me to go down to the medical school one fine fall day and said, you know, I'm a philosopher, but I realize I need to know neuroscience and to know anything in neuroscience, I have to know the anatomy. That episode drops on September 26th. If you like it and the podcast overall, please support us on Patreon. Patrons get access to extra content, plus they feel great about themselves for supporting independent science communication visit www.patreon.com slash bigbio to donate. Well known to relieve anxiety and crush depression. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Haley Hansen, Chloe Ramsey, Sarah Gozinski, and Lexi Souser manage your social media channels. Michael Levin helps with social media and especially Patreon. And as always, thanks to Steve Lane, who manages our website. This podcast also gets generous support from the University of South Florida College of Public Health, and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.